I couldn't believe it. Talk about outcome that's positive when you don't think it could possibly be. And then you start to realize that that is what this work is about. It's about trusting outcome, even though you don't really know that it could possibly be positive, and yet somehow it is. And the more I did that work, after 25 years, I got to a place where I completely trusted that because it just happened over and over and over again. And if you were congruent with intention and you went into the void with that intention, outcome was 100% positive, even when it looked like it wasn't. Welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio, a podcast sharing stories and wisdom from experts in the field of holistic wellness and sustainable living. I am your host, Todd Howard, coming to you from Ravenhill Herb Farm, a permaculture design campus of Pacific Rim College in Victoria, British Columbia. As the show's guests demonstrate, by doing small acts to embrace more mindful living, we can positively impact our communities. In this episode, I greatly enjoyed the opportunity to interview someone who was one of my most profound teachers and later joined the faculty at Pacific Rim College to teach a unique approach called dynamic interactive acupuncture. I am pleased that Dr. Michael Greenwood and I talk at length about one of the most memorable lessons and one that I passed on to my students, the power of intention. Dr. Michael Greenwood has practiced family medicine for decades and has had a deep interest in healing chronic pain. From his own debilitating motorcycle accident while in medical school that left him with pain that was unresponsive to all conventional medicine had to offer, arose a personal journey to a new understanding of health and illness, stress and deep inner tension, and how they affect our lives. At a time when so-called alternative therapies were relatively unknown in the West, Michael began studying Chinese medicine, Ayurveda, and meditation and integrating them into his practice. He also delved into personal growth and transformation work to lead him from a place of anger of his accident to a place of peace and even appreciation for the work that it led him into. Michael recorded many of his insights helping people to transition from their chronic pain into peace and healing in his first book, Paradox and Healing, that he co-authored with Dr. Peter Nunn. Michael's research into the use of acupuncture for post-motor vehicle accident chronic pain gradually evolved into the highly successful residential program at the Victoria Pain Clinic, where Michael integrated many healing modalities in the care of people in pain. His second book, Braving the Void, arose out of his experience at the pain clinic, where he developed many of the interactive techniques discussed more fully in his third book, The Unbroken Field. Michael has so much wisdom and experience to offer. Whether or not you suffer from chronic pain, whether or not acupuncture or medicine is your career, this episode is deeply provocative in the most powerful and positive ways. Buckle up for this ride as Dr. Michael Greenwood helps us all brave the void. Well, Michael, thank you for coming on the show today. It's great to see you. You too, Todd. Haven't seen you for a bit. It's been a while, and I was thinking about it this morning. It's actually been almost 20 years since I first met you, I guess about 18 years ago when you were one of my instructors in my training for acupuncture. And I always remember you as being my favorite instructor. I always look forward to your classes because they were always different than than anything else I was learning. Oh, really? That's very nice of you to say. <laughs> <laughs> so you've 
You are a medical doctor. You also have been an acupuncturist. You've studied Ayurveda and meditation. You really have brought so much, so many modalities into your work. And I just wanted to have you on the show today so we can talk about some of the work that you've done over the years, the books that you've written, your experiences. You just seem to be a wealth of knowledge. And I I don't know where the best place to start is. Uh, Maybe you could just tell us a bit about your your background in medicine and in whichever aspect of medicine you might want to start with and we'll go from there well i went to, went to regular medical school in the in the uk and um when i came out of here I, for some reason i always had a kind of mystical interest in acupuncture i just thought the whole idea of it was really exciting and and um beyond and I never thought for, for a minute there was any reason that I would ever get into it. And then a, a few interesting things started to happen. I'd been in practice a few years and um, one afternoon I was just leaving my office and a Chinese gentleman came in and stopped me and it was Wee Chong Tan, who you probably know. Yeah. He started the first acupuncture school in Victoria. Right. Yeah. He walked into my office at ten to five, and he said, uh, "I want you to come and teach acupuncture." And uh, I, I said, "Are you kidding me?" I said, "I'm not an acupuncturist. I'm a." <laughs> <laughs> but I had been playing around with it, and um, he he had uh, been having tea with my parents for some reason. They knew each other, and and he said he was interested in starting an acupuncture school. At the time, I think he was. Uh, at the uh, one of the Pacific colleges, and um, my parents said, "Well, you should talk to our son. He's interested in acupuncture." So that's uh, kind of how it happened. Before that, the reason I got interested in acupuncture was I took an anesthesia residency in Vancouver at, at St. Paul's, and they said, "We've got nothing for you to do on Friday afternoon, so you may as well go to the acupuncture clinic if you want." So I had found myself for six months down at the acupuncture clinic on at St. Paul's Hospital, which I never knew they actually had an acupuncture clinic, but they did. And uh, I just got fascinated by it. How long ago was this, Michael? (laughs) This would have been 1981. Wow, and they had acupuncture then. Do they still? Is that still something that is offered? As far as I know, they had an acupuncture clinic at St. Paul, and they had an acupuncture clinic here in Victoria at the Memorial Pavilion. Um, and they were funded by somebody, and they weren't well known except in, you know, I mean, they were busy. So I just got fascinated by it. So that's how I ended up meeting Wee Chong Tan, and he he uh, persuaded me to go down to the college. And the way he did it was by reframing my objections. <laughs> <laughs> I since found out it's a fundamental yin yang thing. You know, it was kind of exciting. So, you know, when I told him that I knew nothing really about acupuncture and I wasn't an acupuncturist, he said, well, nobody else knows anything about it either. It'll be fine. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, he sort of laid it on on that I could do whatever I wanted. And he was opening the college. It was just a couple blocks from my office. He said, "Uh, do whatever you like. So I I ended up putting, I thought, you know, what, what can I do that won't raise objections? And I thought, well, you know, chronic pain 
post car accident, nobody wants those patients because they, they just uh, are impossible to treat. So I put a little note in the doctor's boxes at the hospital, and, you know, inviting people to, to send patients along if they had suitable ones. And I never thought anybody particularly would show up, but it turned out as soon as we got going, they were just, they were lined up at the door. They just lined up, just one person after another. And then Dr. Tan had found a, a couple of PhD acupuncturists that he brought over from China and uh, to, to, to kind of work with me and help me out. And this was before Tiananmen, so I don't know how he got these people out. But anyway, I ended up on once or twice a week going down to the college after work and doing some acupuncture on post-MBA patients or people with chronic pain. And this was a transformational moment for me because I, I'll never forget the first patient we put on the table and uh, I looked at the Chinese doctor and I said, where, 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 where should we put a needle? <laughs> And he said, well, how about hoku, <laughs> which, um, you know, is a standard point. Mm -hmm. So I stuck one needle on hoku, and I hadn't even got the second one in. When she started shaking, she started screaming, and within minutes, right in front of our eyes, she basically regressed and went right through the accident mechanism again, seeing the truck come at her you know, the impact, everything, right there. And then she gets off the table and says, my pain's gone. This is pain that she'd had for five years. And the Chinese doctor that was with me, he'd never seen anything like it. He, he told me after he'd never seen anything like this. I, you know, I, I said, well, I don't know what I did. Um, and he, you know, I, I guess in China in those days, they didn't have cars. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody was riding bicycles, I guess. But he'd never seen anything like it, and I'd never seen anything like it. And I just was completely discombobulated after that. I just couldn't get my head around it. I said, what happened? And how did the pain go? And how could it have been so instantaneous? And if, if this is what happens, why don't we know about it? You know, I mean, all these kinds of ideas went, went through my head. And it was just the first of many, like almost every patient that we put on the table, this is what would happen. And I wasn't telling them to do anything. I wasn't doing any of my techniques that, you know, we developed at the pain clinic with breathing techniques and encouraging them to make sound. They were just doing it. I guess, you know, the thing was, I didn't know how to tell them that this wasn't appropriate. If I'd been through acupuncture school in the usual way, I probably would have thought they were having... Um, you know, an acupuncture reaction, and we should probably stop. And but I didn't know about you know those kinds of mm -hmm. reactions. And so uh, we did that for three or four years. We wrote a paper on it and got it published in the American Journal of Acupuncture, which was kind of it was the first paper I ever got published. So I was very proud of myself. But then I then the next thing that happened was I ran into Peter Nunn. Um, Peter Nunn was a disaffected orthopedic surgeon who, um, who started a, 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 a residential pain clinic in Victoria. And I think we were at a meeting together somewhere and he listened to my story and I listened to his story and he said, you know, you should come and 
and worked at the pain clinic with me. So this this sounded really interesting. So I I found myself going out there and becoming involved in his residential clinic. He would have people come for a week or ten days and try various different treatments. And uh, he he wanted to include acupuncture. And he had, believe it or not, a couple of rooms which were double thickness walls where people could scream if they wanted to. Hmm. I think he was into primal scream therapy. It's <laughs> that's the thing, is it? <laughs> kind of, uh, you know, popular at the time. Really? Anyway, I looked in these rooms. I thought, oh, this is a perfect place to uh, have people scream if they want to. If I stick a needle in them. <laughs> but that was kind of how it started. We put a mattress on the floor, and we would take people in there. And I was full of bravado in those days, and I used to think that, you know, the more people I could do, the better. So I thought if I could do two uh, people at once, it would be more fun than doing one, um, which was kind of a novel idea, I guess, in retrospect. But anyway, that's what we did, and it worked like a hot damn because people really enjoyed the camaraderie. And there was several people in the room. I had somebody there with me, so it was safe for me in terms of, of uh, interaction with the patients. That's always a problem when you're a doctor and you've got a female patient in the room with you. But if you had three or four people there, you didn't have any of those kinds of issues to worry about. And so I started to see regressions on a regular basis. People going back, experiencing earlier traumas, not just the accident but also traumas from other situations in their lives and we started to see how this was all connected to their chronic pain hmm. they would get dramatic improvements in, in just a short period of time and, it, and the other exciting thing about it was that it wasn't just acupuncture it was also in the context of a residential program where we had counselors and, and uh, other practitioners that would see them which is another issue when you, you know, if you're treating somebody in a clinic and they're a bit discombobulated, it's a bit tricky to send them driving home um, afterwards. But if in a residential clinic, they don't have anywhere to go except to their room to put their feet up. So you don't have this issue of worrying about whether they're going to be safe going home. Um, so all of these kind of things came together. And I didn't really know ahead of time that that was what was happening. Peter eventually, Peter eventually left or retired or something. So uh, the clinic was taken over by one of the former clients. And, and he was a businessman. He was, with us. He was well suited because he knew how to run a business. It was Ken White. I don't know if you ever met him. No, I haven't. But, uh, he also had a psychology degree in so he kind of knew about psychology, but it was in industrial psychology, but all the same, it was psychology. So he said, you know, I need to do something with my life. This looks really creative. So he took over the business aspect of it and um, called it the Victoria Pain Clinic and kept all the staff. And we just ran that thing for about 25 years. Well, I didn't run it, but he, he ran it. I just showed up. Uh, and I kind of, under, after a while, I kind of understood what we were doing a little bit more. Originally, Peter, we, we, Peter and I worked together for a few years, but he was the actual motive for the first book, Paradox and Healing. He 
called me up one day and said, I want to write a book and I want to put stories into it. So he, he was, I, I don't think I ever would have written a book if it hadn't been for Peter. So we ended up, he, he would write a story. He, would, he was an ideas man, but he didn't have much follow through. But he would write a little story and then I would take it and type it into the computer and, and adjust it a little bit and edit it. And then we would go over it once a week. So he would come over once a week and this went on for two or three years while we wrote the book, maybe longer. We would meet once a week, go over a story, discuss the philosophy of it, and then I would work on it for a while. And then the next week we would do it again. And eventually this book came together, which is a composite of, of, of Peter and I. It's full of stories that he was interested in. And, and then my aspect of it was the paradox uh, concept. It seemed to me that it was very odd that you could do something simple and get changes in symptoms when all of medicine didn't seem to know what was going on. And it occurred to me that the problem we have in medicine is that we have a philosophical position where we act against symptoms instead of acting with them. So, you know, you take an antidepressant, you take a painkiller. It's all sort of a warfare analogy. And germs are seen as bad and you try to destroy them. Um, whereas what we were seeing when we popped a needle into somebody, we were seeing an embracing of something that they had previously seen as bad. I mean, the, the injury is seen as bad and people try to get rid of the pain from it. But, but somehow that was being bypassed and they were actually going in and, and experiencing the pain and the energy that was trapped in their bodies was being released and that was why they were improving. So that was the paradox part, and I just wanted, you know, uh, my my input into the book was trying to put some words to that. Yeah. I want to back up for a few minutes, Michael, and touch on some of this, because I want to give a little context to the first patient you talked about when you put one needle in Hogu on, which is a point, just for listeners, on the dorsal aspect of the hand between the thumb and the index finger. And of course, in Chinese medicine, we know that to be a very powerful point for moving qi and, and helping to dissipate pain. But I'm presuming that point had nothing, no local relationship to the trauma that she was suffering from. Is that correct? Well, it may or may not have had. I mean, I don't remember it now because it was like 30 years ago, 40 mm -hmm. years ago. But, you know, people who injured themselves in car accidents often do have neck pain. Right. And if they have neck pain at C4-5, from an injury at C4-5, which is very common, then they would have pain going down the arm, often locating right at Hoku. Yeah. I didn't know that. <laughs> of course, we know that through our acupuncture training, but the layperson wouldn't recognize the connection between a point on the hand and the neck or any other oh. part of the body. But of course, that's the beauty of acupuncture. Uh, one of the things that always fascinated me about your teaching, and this goes back to what you were saying when Dr. Tan sought you out and said, nobody really knows anything about it, so just come in and teach, is that's that's what I recall in the class with you, is that you 
and correct me if I'm wrong, but I recall you often telling us that it's the intention that's more important than knowing the exact location of an acupuncture point or the exact technique for inserting it. It's the intention behind what you're trying to do. Absolutely. Do I have that correct? Absolutely you do. There's, uh, you know, I didn't realize that at the beginning, but intention is the whole key because the intention is either about acting against or about acting towards. And those two are polar opposites in a way, which, you know, if you're trying to stop the energy from flowing, which is the general intention of, of the patients when they first come because they want to get rid of the pain. It doesn't occur to them necessarily until they've been working with you for a while and the moving of chi actually involves embracing the pain. So the intention is entirely the opposite. When you start working with a patient, you, you have to realize that their intention is one thing and your intention is another. And you have to somehow encourage them to split their intention without actually telling them directly because if you told them directly they would say no way <laughs> i'm trying to get rid of my pain so yeah don't tell me to go towards it kind of thing. Mm -hmm. but that ended up being much less of a problem as time went on because uh once paradox and healing was out people often would have read it by the time they came to see us and so they would understand the concept of intention. So we didn't really, at the pain clinic, have a lot of problems getting intention set up correctly. Plus, I would give them a little blurb ahead of time that would, you know, and I have a little chat with them about intention. So yeah. if you can get them on board, and and then you've got the, the needle is just an expression of that intent, and you're open, and you've got a, a, a context in which people can make a lot of noise and release energies, uh, it doesn't take much. It really doesn't. It's, yeah. like, it's constantly blew me away. And uh, how was that book received amongst the broader community, especially amongst your medical colleagues? Uh, I had a lot of, of very positive feedback from medical colleagues, actually. Um, and people actually, several doctors actually wrote, wrote reviews and sent them in. Mm -hmm. Some of which are still online. If you go to Amazon.com and pull up the book, you'll see them. And and when did Par when did Paradox and Healing come out? Uh, nineteen ninety four, and then okay. we did nineteen ninety two, and then another a second edition nineteen ninety four, and then I did a third edition in two thousand nine. Okay. So. Now, as as far as your own personal journey into this you were not a stranger to chronic pain were you well no i mean i was involved in a motorcycle accident when i was 22 ish and uh it, i this was during your medical school is that correct i was at med school it was about 1972 ish in in england in england yeah okay and um i'd been at a wedding and then had a little bit too much to drink and I was riding my motorcycle back through South London and I was going down a one-way street and a guy pulled out from a park position and did a U-turn and my leg hit his bumper and I flew over the, the hood of the car and landed on the street and um, broke my leg and he took off. Wow. And, but I... I remember 
the whole incident very clearly. And when I saw these people going through their actions, it just brought it right home to me. The, uh, the sense of inevitability that just before the accident, the timelessness, that last second just before impact, it seemed like an eternity. And then the flying over the hood of the car is just, I was in a different space. Was, and of course the whole thing took about two seconds, but in reality that, that timeless moment was some kind of transcendental moment, which has impacted my whole life. And I, and I realized at the time in, in that fleeting instant, I realized something which I've spent the rest of my life trying to put my put words to in a way is that it was meaningful. That it had tremendous meaning and that it was going to inform my life somehow. And as I worked at the pain clinic and saw more and more people going through the similar experiences, I came to realize that that event was the best thing that ever happened to me that it actually made my life have meaning and gave me a course of which to follow that, that really was beyond just my medical training and allowed me to actually help people in ways I don't think I could have helped them otherwise. And, you know, I, I, my foot still hurts 40 years later. So I'm constantly reminded of it every day. And yet, I'm not angry about it anymore. In fact, um, you know, I lost that anger years ago. I'm not even angry at the guy that hit me. I'm, I'm in a way, just immensely grateful for it, which I know seems a bit odd, but, you know, those books would never have been written. We would have never have done the pain clinic. I would never have seen all of that stuff if, if it hadn't happened. I'm sure of that. Mm-hmm. And that mentality that you've been able to adopt over the years to not be a victim to it is in my opinion it's the key to being able to move forward and doing something positive with that experience and i actually had the idea to invite you on the show because i was interviewing one of my good friends uh, a little while ago who was hit by a truck when he was six years old and it wasn't until about almost 30 years later that he really started to process that and mm -hmm. went through many, many dark years. But when he came out on the other side, he had a clear mission and life and a clear intent to serve people and men. And he's, he's now an incredible leader and is, uh, in the work that he does. And as you, he had to take on a, he had to get over the victim state and, and step into the, we call the, the personal accountability and, and try to take ownership of it and find the good, the silver lining within it. And you certainly have done that and to the benefit of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people. Well, I don't know how many people can't be that number. But we, well, people reading your books. It's, yeah. No, it, it's very interesting. It's, it's all about, that is all about intent, really. When I, when I talk about intent, I'm, I'm embracing that idea, too, that it's, it's, not, it's not that you're not a victim, because in a way that you are, but it's, it's you know, because this event did happen, and you, and you were victimized by it, I suppose, particularly, uh, you know, if it wasn't your fault. 
Um, but it's a difficult concept to get across because, you know, it's not about telling people it's their fault. It's about them being able to to uh, move on, as you put it, and, and uh, be responsible for for the act of moving on, which is all about intention and moving towards and embracing. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it becomes this little, little knot of of annoyance in your soul somewhere that you can you can never get beyond. And we see that today in so many people with mental illnesses today that have had a traumatic background. And uh, I just find it depressing that they just take antidepressants and you know, never deal with it. Yeah. Right? Well, that's what they're being told to do by their medical profession. Well, I wouldn't say that psychiatrists don't try, but they don't actually have a context in which they can do a whole lot. Yeah. Yeah. A few, well, it's been six years ago now. I had a, a traumatic injury to my ankle, a terrible water skiing accident, which in an instant ended my running career, uh, even not even just my career, but my ability to run, period. And I was angry about that. I carried that for, for a while. And then a few years later, I was at a, a retreat, personal development, personal growth retreat. I wasn't there for my, for my ankle. I wasn't there for my anger. I was just there for personal exploration. And there was a process that we did. And when I came out on the flip side of that, I started grieving. And I just just started bawling my eyes out. And when it came to the point of trying to put that into words or into context, I realized that what I was grieving was that injury and the loss of of whatever had I had lost during that accident, the that part of my identity. And it was an incredible process to go through because within that 30 minutes, I emotionally healed from, from the wound and any anger that I had associated with that left. It's never come back. Now, of course, I still have physical limitations because of that injury, but just as, as you said, I'm not angry about it. It's opened up so many doorways. Yes. I mean, you do lose something for sure. You lose, you know, your fitness and you lose your ability to, to, run or yeah in my case they squash or whatever but at the same time it gives you something else that, that more than replaces it and, and, did you, know, you michael have an actual moment of grieving did you was there a, a point where you actually released that yes i did personal growth workshops as well as you and several and you know, there was a lot of grieving involved while I was there, but I don't recall a specific um, event that was tied to that. It's it's almost like that accident is just with me all the time, but not in, for me, somehow it's not, I don't feel sad about it anymore. And I, I'm not sure I ever felt really sad about it. I felt annoyed. Um, but it, it didn't, it didn't interfere with, with my finishing medical school. So it didn't impact me in ways that it, that it has, that I see it impacting other people somehow. And being, being in medical school, medical school, when this happened, did the medicine you were studying, allopathic medicine, did it, what did it offer you during this process as far as healing from the physical trauma and any other aspects of it? 
well, they did what it's good at. You know, they repaired the leg and put a steel plate down down the leg, and and I wore a cast for three months. I mean, I got the best orthopedic care, but the uh, the energetics of it was never addressed, of course. Mm-hmm. But um, no, I, I I didn't. There was the threat of having to delay my education, but it never actually happened. So I, yeah. I lived to graduate on time, and well, I, I never got a seriously negative impact in terms of my career. Mm-hmm. That definitely swacked my sporting life, but right. I mean, you lose that anyway over time. So <laughs> at this point, now that I'm seventy, I don't. I don't think it has made much difference. And you have always been, from what I can see, at the forefront of the integration of different therapies and modalities. And I do want to talk more about the work that you did for almost three decades at the Victoria Pain Clinic. But before it was the Vogue thing to do, you were doing breath work. Like this was pre-Wim Hof craze. You were teaching us 20 years ago about how to control do controlled hyperventilation during acupuncture treatments to get the energy moving you've you've studied and used meditation in your practice you've studied ayurveda you've combined so many things and you've been doing it for so long where did that inspiration and even just the knowledge of these other modalities come from well i guess the first thing that happened was when you drive to work in Victoria, I used, I used to go down Pandora, and there was the Transcendental Meditation Clinic on Pandora. And I would drive past it every day. And I used to think, well, you know, I should go learn to meditate. And um, after doing a, a personal growth workshop um, in about probably the early 80s, mid-80s, I said, okay, I'm going to go in there and Try to keep what I learned alive in meditation. So I, I became a TMer at that point, and so that that was the meditation aspect of it. And then I did quite a few personal growth workshops, and one of them was up on Gabriola. You probably know about that one. It was run by Bennett Wong and Jock McKean. No, I'm not familiar with that one. Oh, aren't you? No. Well, they ran, uh, I forget the name of the place now, but it's still running, I believe. Hmm. Anyway, Jock McKean was a medical doctor and an acupuncturist, and Bennett Wong was a psychiatrist. So they ran these workshops, and he would do, they would do hyperventilation. So, and then, and then Jock McKean would also use the odd acupuncture needle. So that was where I first got exposed to hyperventilation and, and acupuncture. And when I came back to bed, I thought, you know, I can do that. I was, again, I was at my bravado stage. So I just started including breathing techniques with, with the acupuncture I was doing. And then I, I, after a while, I started to figure out what worked and what didn't. And I don't know if you know a guy called Stanislav Groff. He sort of... Yeah. Started the rebirthing thing and hyperventilation. Um, so that's where that came from. But then I started to realize that you didn't really have to push the hyperventilation too much. You just had to 
maybe increase the breath a little bit so you wouldn't resist the acupuncture mm-hmm. to go when you put the needle in. Well, I, I came to just asking people to breathe in deeply with the insertion of the acupuncture needle and then just keep the breathing going a little bit faster than normal, but not to push it too much. Um, initially, when we first started, we got them to push it a lot, but then I realized we didn't need to because the acupuncture needle itself, plus a little bit of extra breathing, seemed to do the trick. And it also seemed to reframe intent in an interesting way. Because once you got people to take it in, as opposed to one of the traditional teachings of acupuncture is that people should breathe out when you put the needle in. We just turned that around and said, breathe in and, and take it in and then just go with whatever comes up. If an emotion comes up, go with it. If you feel like shouting, go with it. And I would explain that we had a room with a double thickness walls so they could make as much noise as they like. And we put mattresses on the floor rather than um, a massage table so that they wouldn't feel like they would fall off the table. It was all about just being safe to express who you are in the moment and realize that there wouldn't be any consequences. And the breathing in and the slight hyperventilation seemed to to help that. Yeah. I remember my first experience with your style of treatment from your teaching and two of my classmates and I I don't recall if we snuck into the student clinic after hours or not, but it was after hours. We were in the st- student clinic. I felt like we were, I was in the movie Flatliners. I actually called us the Flatliners. Mm-hmm. And uh, they put needles, just a few, because you, you have a, an amazing simplistic way of choosing needles. And so I think we had four needles in me, and then I went into the breathing, and I probably went into a more aggressive hyperventilation. But... Over the course of several minutes, I started to basically develop a lot of the symptoms of of respiratory alkalosis in which my face went quite numb and my lips felt like they were puckering. But the craziest thing is I had needles in each of my wrists and my arms started to levitate off the table. That's all I can say because I wasn't doing it. And I wasn't even aware of where they were until one of my colleagues touched my arms. And they were way up off the table, out to the side, and my wrists were completely locked in volar flexion. And then the my skin tone in my hands started to go kind of gray and mute. And uh, it was a profound experience. It took me like an hour after the treatment to kind of come back into normalcy. And then I remember we... We chatted with you the next time we were in class about it, and you mentioned that uh, it sounded like there could be something to related related to a lack of circulation in the hands. And we hadn't—I hadn't told you this, but that's exactly what our intention was in going into this treatment. As I had always had chronically cold hands, to the point where it was a a real uh, challenge in palpating and treating patients because my hands always felt like ice cubes. So it was it was a profound initial experience of your work. Well, you know, I don't think now I would tell you to breathe quite as hard. <laughs> <laughs> but I wouldn't change it. It was it was great. <laughs> but, but certainly, we did see a lot of that initially. With uh, this is not an uncommon uh, experience yeah. for people to end up going into some kind of carpal spasm, mm-hmm. um, and. 
and then take a while for them to come out. But you can actually, so I, I stopped pushing it in a sense because what you want is not that, you want this. Right. So you want the cheese. The, so the movement you, of the hands. Yeah. Can you, and, the, and it would eventually go to that. If you would yeah. stay, stay with this for a while, then it would gradually release and this would start to happen. But if you could sort of bypass this um, carpopedal spasm by not pushing the breathing quite as hard. Right. And just doing this with intention to start with. And I, I had uh, several patients. I remember one guy who was a drummer who was having who couldn't drum anymore because whenever he started drumming, this would happen. And it was exactly as you described when we did the acupuncture. This is what happened, and I wasn't pushing the breathing, but eventually it opened up, and he was able to go back to drumming. Well, the key was locked somewhere in here, and it was just open. Yeah. It's very similar to the advice you gave me 18 years ago because you, you told me if I could move through that locked to get get movement back in my hands. And so I recall trying it again at a later point. And I think I was probably too deep in the breathing to be able to, to push it that far because I was never able to get the hands open and moving freely from, from the treatment. But Once this starts to happen, you have to... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I recall trying that, yeah. I have a question for you about the breathing. It's another personal experience. And this was about five years ago. I was in Mexico and it turned out that I had been swimming and surfing in water very near to a sewage output. And so I ended up getting a kidney infection mm-hmm. and I ended up being feeling quite unwell to the point where we were thinking about coming home. And one night I went to just move in the the house that we were renting. I think I was walking up a spiral staircase and I kind of dropped to the stairs and I started to go into hyperventilation. Not something I had ever happened to me before unless I was doing a controlled hyperventilation. And at that time, it took me a while to figure out even what was going on. And then by the time I did figure it out and I told my wife to go find a paper bag, we couldn't find one. We didn't have one. And so I ended up going through a fairly in-depth hyperventilation for several minutes, maybe five or more. And then when she finally found a paper bag and I got my respiration back to normal, I knew within minutes that I had just, I had, I had just kicked the virus. I, whatever was infecting me, I knew I had just beat it. And sure enough, that was my turnaround point. I started to recover from that exact moment. Do you have any experience with that? Is there any... Well, it's, med- in a way, it's a fairly topical question What with this virus that's going around that everybody's yeah. thought about. But in fact, you can approach even viral illnesses in unusual ways. And um, there is an experience where you know the virus has gone. You know, mm-hmm. I, I mean, in Chinese medicine, they just talk talk about pathological invasions without mentioning viruses, because I guess back 2,000 years ago, they didn't know what it was. And a lot of the techniques are involved of just um, asking the pathological influence to leave, and then and and you can actually make make that happen sometimes. But again, with intent, with intent, it, and with breathing, it it, it can. It can happen more quickly sometimes, and you can actually yeah. know that it's happened, and you can feel it leave. So there is an experience of of a pathological invasion that that isn't just oh I'm a victim of a virus, 
Yeah. And, and, you know, I'm not saying that I or anybody else is a master of making these things happen, but we do have experiences like you just described where you can actually, something happens and you, oh, it's gone. Yeah. Well, and I, I carried that forward. A couple of years ago, I had Norwalk virus and I, I was just lying on my deck sick as a dog. And then I, I thought, I'm going to hyperventilate. I'm going to see what happens because I recalled that the previous time in Mexico it had worked. So I started hyperventilating. I got pretty far into it, but then I got scared. I was My, my intention kind of got sidetracked as I, I got more angst about the hyperventilation and I was all alone. And uh, so I ended up bringing myself back out of it with, again, with a paper bag. But I was speaking with one of my uh, medical colleagues, uh, who you may know, he also teaches meditation. And he said, yeah, I could have carried on with that. And even if I pass out, my body's just going to self-regulate and, and bring me back. And I, I, it wasn't as profound of a healing experience, but I still felt there was a shift and and dealing with the virus in that experience as well well there's some, there some value to having somebody present with you when you do these things <laughs> well i mean in, in fairness my daughter who was seven at the time was also sick with norwalk <laughs> virus not far away from me but... the problem is you just get to the point where something's going to happen but you get frightened to that point and pull out yeah whereas yeah. if you get somebody with you they could sort of take you through it and make sure what that... what is the medical reasoning or rationale behind that hyperventilation helping to be a turning point in that that process in that healing well i don't think medicine goes there at all i mean stanislav Grof went there but i don't think medicine goes there very much well what is it can you give any rationale from any perspective um i just don't think that the germ theory is all there is to it I think there are germs, obviously, I'm not saying there aren't. I mean, there are viruses, but but whether they invade and how they go in and how they go out is 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 uh, open to to different interpretations. And the the difficulty with energetic work is you can't sort of guarantee results. If you can say this drug does this, you know it's going to do such and such if you use it. But if you use energetic work, the outcomes are rather um, not fixed in stone so you, you, you try these techniques out and you don't really know for sure what's going to happen all you can say is that what comes out of a hyperventilation experience or an acupuncture experience as long as it's congruent with the intent that you went into it with so if you have an intention to to just embrace what comes along then that's what's happened that's what might happen if you have an intention to get rid of any of the virus or an intention to just act against something, then that's what's going to happen. So unfortunately, one, one goes into these techniques probably with wrong intent, and then you don't come out with what you hope for. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Yeah, absolutely. And it's an unknown. When you go to that transformational void, you don't know what the outcome is going to be. It's, and it's going to be consistent with the intent that you went into it with. Yeah, that's very similar to what Lonnie Jarrett just said in in the interview I just had with him. And he, I asked if there were any time he would turn a patient away, and he and he gave a few very rare circumstances. But he said, as long as someone has the intent to get better, he will work with them. Right. But if they if they come to him and ask for help with smoking cessation, but they don't actually want to quit, 
then there's nothing that he can do. They exactly. have to have the intention. Exactly. So how how the intention manifests is, is an unknown, and that's the difficulty. People want to know what the outcome's going to be, but you can't tell them. You actually don't know. So you have to set up this scenario where people will go in and ideally embrace what's going on in their lives without actually knowing what the outcome's going to be. That And that leaves most practitioners feeling hung out there and, and at risk of you know, causing a catastrophe. So I, I think most practitioners don't really want to go there either. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. And I don't quite know how it happened in my life, other than the fact that I was in a in a, a context that I hadn't envisaged. The pain clinic was not a context that I envisaged or or set up. It just was. It was there, and it, it produced um, results that I was quite shocked and 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 didn't really know ahead of time what what was going to happen. After a while, I got okay with that because we'd seen so many great things happen. I I did have a confidence that it was all all going to be good in the the long run. Mm -hmm. But I never actually knew for sure. Well, the the unknown is certainly something that can bring discomfort. And I, you actually, you completely changed my style of doing acupuncture when you taught us that the intention is more important than perhaps anything else that we do. And I stopped being so academic about point location and being more intuitive. And it gave me great freedom in my treatments. And, oh, it totally frees things up, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you, you don't sort of get lost in abstractions in your head trying to figure out whether you got the right formula. No, and that I find that it can be very disconnecting from the intention and from your patient if you have this energetic block where you're you're counting this um, this this inch measured in a term called chun using your thumb breadth to locate this exact topical point which really we know that the points are are not just exact topical points there's a much broader energetic area yeah and furthermore if you look at different systems they have different locations for the same point yeah so you have to ask yourself whether whether it's that important yeah Uh, Ultimately, I came down to some very simple points. Just, um, I don't know if the, the uh, extraordinary meridians are much sort of simpler than the, than the real meridians, the ones that were generally taught. And mm-hmm. they have opening points on the hands and feet. Well, that's perfect, you know. You can yep. use an opening point on the feet. I even gave up using the ones on the hands because people want to do this with their hands, but the feet. You can have a bit more control, so you you can set up intent to to let the body shake and scream or whatever else, and just use points on the feet. And often bladder sixty two and kidney six were good ones, and not even on the right points to what what's called bladder sixty two prime and kidney prime, which is a little lower. It's just there's a soft spot there. You can get those two points in, and oftentimes that's the only thing that's necessary. Now bladder sixty two opens up the whole back. And kidney six sort of opens up the whole front. And mm-hmm. You can play around with those. There's also spleen three and spleen four and and uh, liver three. And and then you can add hoku in the hands if you want to. But on the hands, I tend to do in and out so that people, if you don't have a needle flying around when you're moving them. On the feet, you can leave them in for a few minutes. And when the feet start shaking, you can pull the needles out quickly. Right. And then 
it just sort of carries on and they'll say, well, and then you can just observe the body and see where it's holding. Oftentimes you'll see that they're holding in the pelvis or they're holding in the chest or somewhere. And then you can needle there in and out uh, while they're actually going through this process. So you're, you're down to about, you know, four needles to get started and one or two needles as you go along and the rest they're doing themselves. Mm-hmm. And I know that's, you know, probably not congruent with four years of education. <laughs> <laughs> we teach a lot more than that, but this is. Well, uh... well, at the end of the day. Yeah. That's, that's what I sort of ended up doing. Well, and as you said, with the, the intention and as I mentioned with the intuition of locating the points based on well, however you may intuit them. For me, it was always just an energetic feel of, of lightly palpating the surface. I had a patient once who, uh, this was a long time ago, I don't even remember the context, but I had a sense that there was a blockage on on her chest and rated uh, CV-17. And as I was kind of doing my my palpation to insert the point on the sternum, she just started to basically seize in a very convulsive sort of fashion. She was crying. Her whole body was shaking. And it was from me touching the point, let alone I hadn't even inserted the needle. I never even did get to the needle insertion. And mm-hmm. I just held my finger on this point. And it, it, she went on for 10 or 20 minutes. And I was in a I was not in a double-walled soundproof environment. I had several other patients, and she was wailing, and and it was such a healing experience for her. And it was it was I I have no means to even explain or justify how it happened, other than I know I had a deep intention to help her, and just from touching that point, it released something. Well, that's the key heart point. That's it. That's the one. Yep. That's where it, that's where it ends up. That's yep. where you start. Once you uh, once you get crying and and you can sense that it's coming to an end of that, you can see the heart needs opening. Boom! Right there, a CV seventeen, and and it, yep. it all it all just coalesces right into the heart. Yeah. And, and it's you know I've seen that over and over and over again. So I'm totally with you on on that experience. Um, mm-hmm. I actually end up using CV seventeen as a final needle quite frequently. Mm-hmm. Now, for years at Pacific Rim College, you caught a court, taught a course called Dynamic Interactive Acupuncture. And I was actually just reading through the description of that before we came on. And basically, you were combining all of these different philosophies and modalities into an acupuncture course. Is that correct? You were doing breath work and intention and meditation. And is, is that... Yeah, that was the idea of the course was to... Was to um crystallize the the thoughts I had in paradox and healing and the acupuncture techniques I was using and actually bring it into the classroom in a way that the students could actually feel it as an alive process. So it, one of the things we did was I'd give a presentation for an hour, it would be a two hour evening thing. And then and then I'd pop them on the table and then we'd treat each other. Mm-hmm. It, it was quite interesting. Uh, stuff would actually happen right there with the students. Um, because they were they were they were totally open to it, yeah, and, and they were keen to try, and they didn't mind shaking and crying and making noise on the table, right there in the acupuncture school. That was re- it was really a lot of fun. 
Yeah. Well, hopefully we can get you back sometime to do more when you're less busy. So, so with this, this, this concept of bringing all these therapies together, it's, it's basically what you used at the Victoria pain clinic for decades, ultimately, which culminated in you writing the book, braving the void, sharing a lot of those experiences. Can you talk a bit about some of those outcomes that, you you were able to bring about in the clinic so many amazing things that you know some of the more interesting ones i would jot down and i realized there was a book there nobody else was going to be able to not, nobody else would be able to come up with stories that were kind of incredible i remember one in terms of outcome that i'll share with you right now is we had this guy who was a, a karate master mm -hmm. he had some pain somewhere i forget where but anyways i'd stick needles in him and i'd be just watching him go and suddenly he'd go boom <laughs> <laughs> look out <laughs> to keep myself out of the way <laughs> well okay so he goes boom like this but into the concrete floor oh talk about what i thought was a bad outcome and he ruptures the ligament on his thumb so that the thumb is just like like that. And I thought, well, that's not an outcome that, uh, you know, is positive. So I, I, <laughs> I was a little bit upset. So I realized because of my medical training that he was going to have to have that ligament repaired. Um, so I, I called the plastic surgeon on call, and it turns out to be the one plastic surgeon who was familiar with my work out of you know, half a dozen of them in town. That's the one I get. He says, oh, Michael, what have you done now? Went <laughs> into my office this afternoon. So I sent him in. He gets his ligament repaired the same day. He's back at the clinic the next day with a cast in his arm. I thought he was going to be mad at me. But he says, no. He says, I can't go to work for two weeks and I need two weeks off maternity leave. So this is perfect. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Talk about outcome that's positive when you don't think it could possibly be. And then you start to realize that that is what this work is about. It's about trusting outcome, even though you don't really know that it could possibly be positive, And yet somehow it is. Mm -hmm. And more I did that work after 25 years, I got to a place where I completely trusted that because it just happened over and over and over again. And if you were congruent with intention and you went into the void with that intention, outcome was a hundred percent positive, even when it looked like it wasn't. Yeah. And that's the one case where there actually was a physical injury and even that was a positive outcome. Yeah. And it reminds me so much of the, the men's work and the personal development work that I do and some of the retreats that I lead is that very often people don't want to go into those dark, painful places. They don't want to explore internally to see what demons might be lurking there. And when they do, sometimes the immediate response doesn't seem to be a very positive one. But invariably there is a positive outcome that comes from from doing any sort of of energy releasing work be it physical or emotional or elsewhere 
and it, and it is, don't you think? It's it's, it's almost invariable. I wouldn't yeah. say hundred percent. You never say hundred percent for anything, but it's just amazing how positive outcome happens when you do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, as we say in Chinese medicine, when the when the qi doesn't flow, there is illness or disease, mm-hmm. and when it flows, there is health, and and that's what the work that uh, would you say that's kind of the crux of the work of the work that you're doing is getting the qi to flow again. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Now, I recall you sharing some stories of like, patients from motor vehicle accidents who would, during the treatment, actually go into physical contortions that probably were a reliving of the actual contortions they went through in that motor vehicle accident. Is that correct? Totally, because I would encourage them to, to let the body move. They were on a mattress on the floor, so it was very easy for them to do that. <clears throat> but every now and again... There'd be one that they needed a little bit of assistance. And I, you may be thinking of the same thing that I'm thinking of. There's this patient that had injured themselves in a, in a, in a water skiing accident, actually, and they flipped hmm. over the board and, and they've had neck stiffness ever since. And I was, I put the needles in and had her take, start breathing and, and her neck started to move back like this, but she could never get it back far enough. And I realized that she was going through the accident mechanism. So I actually picked her up in a way that mimicked the accident so that I was, her, her head was on, on the mattress. And then I would, and then I brought her up so that her back was going over as she would have done during the accident. And I watched her neck just go completely beyond what I thought was possible wow. and but she kept saying no more <laughs> a little bit further <laughs> <laughs> this could have another bad outcome eh? <laughs> there's a moment where i thought bad outcome might happen <laughs> anyway i was at the point where the neck looked like it was not even attached to the body when there was a loud pop wow and she said oh my pain's gone wow and so she just intuitively knew that that's where things yeah. needed to go. Yeah. But I mean, obvious, for obvious reasons, no physio could ever have taken to that place. No. Not very foolish doing it, but, you know, that's what we <laughs> And that's what happened. And she got up in her pain, which she'd been ever since her accident, which was a flip over accident, completely gone, instantaneous. I couldn't believe it. And, you know, we saw that over and over and over again. It's just amazing. Just amazing. And I recall you telling a story of a guy who got up and there was a, a large, very heavy desk. And he, like, threw that desk across the room or something. Do I have that right? Oh, yes. Yes, there was that case. But I can't remember the details of it except that... Um, Oh yes, no, I do remember it. That's right. We we hadn't had any any uh, huge breakthroughs in the acupuncture room, but he he came up to me after the evening lecture and said, "I've I've got a a pain right there in my, in my head." He was a native guy, and he'd come down from up north from one of the indigenous communities up north, and. So I, I said, I obviously 
figured out that you know this this was not just an ordinary pain this was something that was trying to tell us something so i said well come into the acupuncture room right now so it came in there and i put a needle right there and he immediately turned into a bear and you're just pointing just just for reference kind of midway along the forehead i put a needle there it was on yin tang basically okay just above the eyebrow yeah to add clarification to this account by Dr. Michael Greenwood, he emailed me after the show to indicate that, in fact, he had used the point Governor Vessel 20 byway on the crown of the head instead of Yintong between the eyebrows. Now back to his account of the experience. He turned into a bear in front of my eyes. Honestly, like this. And that was when he picked the desk up and, and oh. It's probably a little bit of an exaggeration to say he <laughs> it certainly was a big desk. I was going for drama. Yeah. It turned out that he had bear medicine, you know, that, that was part of his identity and his indigenous. Right. He had, his, he had an indigenous name that had to do with the grizzly bear. So it was all very much tied into his identity. And well, after he threw that desk across the room his headache disappeared and instantaneous and he wow. suddenly, he said I'd, I'd always resisted my my bare identity because i thought it was stupid wow but now he realized that it was who he was and he went back to his community and embraced the whole idea of his animal identity through the tribe of course where he would where it would have been totally accepted and he he, he knew that he had been resisting and fighting this all his life for reasons he really couldn't identify just thought it was stupid michael is this work these these healing experiences is this the so-called void when you write about braving the void it's this journey into a, a space between can you talk a bit about what that void is well, it's the space between these two opposites. You know, the first book was about the paradox. And then in these stories, we're about going in with intention into, into the space between the opposite perspectives. And that there is, there is literally an energetic space there where, yes, you're in pain and you want to get rid of it. And two, on the other side, is this idea of embracing. And between the two is this space, and that's the same space that I entered when, when I had my car accident temporarily. And it's the same space that everybody is left hanging in if they go back into their trauma. It's a space where you know that what happened is right, and you know it's wrong at the same time. You know, you're being injured. That's not very nice. But at the same time, you know that that has meaning. And how do you bring those two together? You have to be right in the place between the two of them until you can see how they fit. But it's not a seeing with your mental eye. It's a, it's a seeing energetically. It's a, it's, a, it's a whole being experience. And that's why meditation is quite, kind of helpful for this, because you can actually get whole, whole experiences in meditation where you're sort of beyond... Uh, the polar opposites. Um, and, and once you're familiar with the notion of that, then you suddenly find yourself in it in, in, uh, in a bodywork session. It doesn't freak you out quite as much because you know what it is. You've been there before. 
So I always encourage people to take up some kind of meditation technique after these experiences, otherwise they lose them. You know? Right. So to tap into this, to enter into this void, you would use acupuncture and, and combine that with other therapies? Is no, that... you just do it. Well, I just did it with, I mean, I'm sure there's many, many ways of getting into that space, but the, the way we were doing it was just with a couple of needles in the feet and yep. slightly deeper breathing and setting up intent. Like I would have a little chat with them ahead of time. Yeah. In, in the pain clinic, we actually would have, um, you know, a, a full lecture or two. Um, but it actually doesn't take that long. You know, when we were at the school with the students, I would just give a talk and then we would do it. Yeah. And you called it braving the void. The braving is that, what's the meaning behind that? Is that because this void, it tends to be the place where we don't want to go? Well, we had long evening discussions when, when I was looking for a title for the book. I knew the word void needed to be in there. Yeah. Um, and then wanting the void, what, how do you do this? And then suddenly, sudden braving the void came to, to mind. And that was the word. It's the word. It's like you're, you're, you have to be brave to, to go into that space. And it just fitted beautifully. So, and I still see it that way. Is like you have to decide that's something you're willing to, to do. And not everybody wants to do that, and you know, it's it. It's, so, does this bravery that's involved in that? Does this void exist only for these major traumatic life-altering experiences, or can it even come down to the more mundane experiences where there's a, a smaller void that can be tapped into? No, it's there all the time. It's right, you know, it's right there in your awareness, right there, right here, right now. We're in it right now. We're doing something right now. We're having a chat without knowing what the outcome of it's going to be and trusting that it's going to, this whole interview is going to be okay. And, <laughs> and so we're right in the void right now as we speak. It's, it's, it's this. It's the place where you're not really sure what the outcome is going to be, and yet you trust. Hmm. And if you live your life that way, I mean, I think these experiences are just a lesson for life. You know, get up in the morning and spend your whole day doing that, living in that space. And it's really a heart-centered space. It allows you to be more present with people uh, and, you know, gets you right beyond whatever things that are bothering you. you, you don't get angry. You don't grieve all the time. You're just right there with people. You can be totally present. And I, quite frankly, it's probably my most powerful tool in regular medicine because I'm seeing people all the time. And to the extent that I can be totally present with them, even just for a couple minutes, outcome is very often really good. Right. This, this reminds me of, I don't know if you're familiar with Michael Singer's book, The Surrender Experiment. But no. basic, basically, it's, a, it's his life journey of just deciding at some point, I think in his early 20s, through his meditation, that he was just going to surrender to whatever the universe brought to him and go along with it. And so for the rest of his life, and still to this day, he's just surrendered to what has been presented to him. And it eventually led him to create a software business that sold for nearly a billion dollars and that was certainly nothing that he had ever envisioned or planned and knew nothing about software in the beginning it was medical based software um, but through his whole life he just opened up to 
that possibility, not knowing what the outcome would be. Well, now if that isn't braving, I don't know what is. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. And, and, and it is possible to live that way. And, you know, nobody's necessarily going to become a billionaire, but it certainly makes your life more interesting. In yeah. Day. Well, it's, it's a great book, Surrender Experiment. I recommend it to anyone. And uh, it'd be great. It'd be great to get Michael Singer on the show. So if anyone knows him, anyway. Everybody, <laughs> um, Todd. What's that? I thought you knew everybody. No, not yet, not yet. So, correct me again. I, there's so many things I'm remembering from nearly 20 years ago. But at the pain clinic, you would use a variety of different modalities. Would you not? Like, even would there be drumming sometimes or chanting that? that people would do alongside the work that you were doing? I, that wasn't really part of the program, but although I'm sure we did use it from time to time. Okay. We had about five of us on staff. And I guess yeah. it's something I made up in my head. Well, I did drumming at, an, at, an, at other workshops. And okay. I'm pretty sure, we, you know, under certain circumstances, we may have done a bit of drumming, which is a way of getting whole groups into an altered state quite quickly. Right. And um, did did you ever use any sort of plant spirit medicine, psychedelics, or anything of that nature? No, we no, we didn't. It's becoming more popular now, LSD workshops, but it, we were pretty closely modeled to the medical model, and had we started doing things like that, we would have probably gotten shut down pretty quickly. Fair enough, yeah. Um, so actually, my focus was trying to get people off drugs, not giving them a different kind of drug. Right. Um, no matter how useful it might be. And I'm sure it is. I'm sure the LSD research is going on now is very interesting. I don't know if you're yeah. date on it, but it is very interesting. It is, yeah. But no, we, I mean, we had people who were popping opiates. And, well, we wanted to get them off it, not switch them to something different. So no, I, I didn't use any drugs at all. Even though I could prescribe, I, I didn't, because I would tell people that was the policy of the clinic. If they needed drugs, they needed to bring them with them so that I was out of that loop. Right. If I was in that loop, I'd be playing both sides of the fence and be trying to get people off while prescribing, which is, you know, is an impossible situation to be in. Any herbal therapy at all, then, in the work that you were doing? No, not specifically, but if, if, um, if, I, if I spotted that somebody could use a herbal supplement you know, when they left, I might say, you maybe you should explore this. Kind of thing. I mean, there are lots of Chinese herbs that are very useful. Yeah. And backing way up, what what was your inspiration to go into medicine in the beginning? Oh, I always wanted to be a doctor, Todd. Yeah. Right from the get-go. My dad was a doc. I loved him so much that I just wanted to be like him. And... and um, I was very clear that there's nothing else I ever wanted to do. So he supported me along the way and, and helped me achieve that. And it's not like I was ambivalent. It was definitely right from the get-go. Um, I knew that. And I, I, in a way, I feel very lucky because I meet so many people who have no idea what they want to do with their lives. And they seem lost and they go this way and that way and they can never actually settle on anything. Not, I never had that problem. I always knew, and I'm still doing it, and I still love it, and I, I never, never had any doubt about that. It's kind of cool for me, really, because it yeah, makes it easier. 
can you tell tell us a bit about the third book, The Unbroken Field, and what that was based on? The Unbroken Field was trying to put a theoretical context on it. Paradox and Healing was really about the dichotomy, the conundrum. Brave in the Void was about bringing that conundrum together a little bit through an experience. And then The Unbroken Field was putting it into uh, um, a Chinese medicine acupuncture context because we were using so much acupuncture. So I, I actually spent a bit of time talking about the techniques and and you know the specific techniques which we didn't talk about in the other two books how we worked and then what points we were choosing and why and so it was it was basically an acupuncture theoretical model okay well with the three books it's to me it, it's it's a there's a completeness there so one being a conundrum, the second one being experience, and then the third one trying to put a mental framework around it. Right. Is this the Greenwood trilogy? The Greenwood trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> Looking back on things now, on decades and a very a career of braving the void on a larger scale, so to speak. Is there anything you would have done differently? Any advice you would give to your younger self? <laughs> You know, well, of course, I I would much rather have not had that accident than had it, even though, even though it has informed my life. Mm -hmm. you know, I, when I was younger, I drank too much and partied too much and was basically irresponsible, like most young people are. Yep. And I paid a price for it. And yes, if I had to do it again, I wouldn't have done that. <laughs> <laughs> but, maybe, but maybe I wouldn't have done the rest of it either. So That's true. Yeah. You know, what? What would you have done differently in your in your actual practice and in your healing practice? Well, if I hadn't had the the accident, I don't know whether I'd have been searching as much for for weird solutions. I mean, I was aware that you know nobody was going to help me, so I explored things like meditation and workshops and whatnot. And did you get into the the workshops and the meditation because you were dealing with this trauma and trying to figure out how to move? move on with life? Well, I typically find that when people go into the personal growth work, quote unquote, it's, it's typically be, I find because of crisis of some sort, personal crisis. Well, yes, it's sort of a marriage thing and, and the kids thing and the work thing and balancing all these things and the workshops are there and maybe they can help. And when I got to them, I realized that, that the accident was all part of it as well. Yeah. So, you know, there's a time in life at around your 30 that you sort of ask yourself, what the hell is all this about? So these workshops are very attractive and you go to them and, and they can be very helpful. And they certainly were for me. I did lots of them. And then, did you and I, study under any of the, the so-called legends of, of this work? Can you give me a name or two? Oh, gosh, I don't know. <laughs> and John McLean were, were, were legends at the time. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm going to look them up for sure. Uh, I think they're. I think Bennett Wong has died. Jock's, Jock's probably still alive. Okay. And, but I don't think he's teaching up at Gabriola anymore. Um, but he was certainly a legend at the time. Mm -hmm. What advice, if any, do you have for 
the the young acupuncturist or health practitioners in general or the students who may be listening to this who feel inspired to go into a similar line of work or or want to be able to help people with chronic pain and a similar vein that you have? Well, I think probably the most important thing that acupuncturists need to understand is this whole concept of intent. I know that it's brought up in 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 school. It's mm-hmm. taught, but it's taught as a very often as a as a as an abstraction, as a theoretical idea. Um, I don't know that it has the actual experience attached to it, and so for that, you almost have to go somewhere else to get it. So a workshop or two is probably a really good idea. And you're going to you're going to lead a couple of those for us. <laughs> I'll keep working on you. Retire from what I'm doing now, maybe. Lonnie Jarrett said he's good. He's going to come back in a bit too. So I'll, I'll just keep. That. Yeah, I'll keep working. We'll, we'll have to have lunch together or something. <laughs> yes, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't think at a school. Schools can only really teach you a theoretical mental approach. I mean, you you have to learn the acupuncture points. You have to know their location. You have to know their function. And all those things are important. But And then somebody says, but it's really about intent. And, you, and you know, that's there. But what does that actually mean? And that's something that is that you sort of have to experience for yourself. Rather, nobody can really teach you that unless you do experiential work. I think it was kind of cool that we were able to actually do a little bit of it at, at your school. Yeah, it was um, great. But I don't know how you could structure that into, into a curriculum for everyday schools. I, don't, I, I sort of looked at that for, for medical school too. I mean, you learn medicine and everybody says, oh, well, medicine's not really about this. Medicine's really about interaction and human compassion and blah, 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 blah. But how do you teach that in school to irresponsible 20 year olds? You know, <laughs> I wasn't even, when I was 20, I wasn't listening to that. Yeah. It's something that, that comes on as, as time goes by, you realize that there's something else going on uh, beyond the curriculum, beyond the teaching. Um, and it's a very, very important part of acupuncture and to the extent that it could be taught i think it's nice but it's i don't know how you could actually set up a course and actually teach it because it's not a mental thing it's not something you can learn it's something you have to feel energetically right Mm -hmm. well and i think it it takes me back again to mention lonnie jarrett and his interview he talked about that the the medical practitioner him or herself must first do the work, must do the personal work to then be able to have the medicine come to its full fruition. And Absolutely. it's, and I think once you've started to do that work, of course, that work never ends. No. There's, there's, there's no terminus, but once you begin doing it, then it, I think it gets the intention and the methods of, of setting the intention become clearer. Right. And it's so much more important for this in acupuncture because that is the basis of the medicine. Whereas in regular medicine, you know, you, you can prescribe penicillin without dealing with any of this stuff. So it's it's mm-hmm. not doesn't seem to be quite as important. Although when you you've been in it a while, you realize it is important. 
Yeah. It's the whole game. It's the whole thing. And Peter Conway said in a previous episode as well, he's one of our, our faculty members, but he talked about medicus actually refers to the practitioner. The term medicus refers to the practitioner and not the medicine itself. And, and the practitioner is basically the medium between the patient and the medicine. Yes. So to the extent that the practitioner can embody this greater understanding, and Lonnie Jarrett talks about it to a great extent, this is integral idea of just yeah. being the largest thing you can possibly be. And even that isn't as large as you could be. You know, and you're never ever going to ultimately embrace everything because you know it's always bigger. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's 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 very eloquent. He is. Yeah. Yeah, I recommend everyone to listen to that episode and the Peter Conway episode as well as others. Michael, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. What right now has you most excited? A reconnection to all of this stuff because I've been out of it for a bit. And just talking to you has uh, been very enlightening, a lot of fun. So you are coming back. This is good to hear. (laughs) I will have my people connect with your people. Okay. No, it's been great fun. I've really enjoyed this. And it's one of the the things I, it's the thing I love most about doing these podcasts is just the chance to have inspirational conversations with, in this, in this context, as you said, just braving the unknown, braving the void. Well, I think you're, you're living the dream, man. (laughs) You're braving the void as, as you speak. Thank you. The whole thing you're doing is, is, uh, is an exploration of the unknown, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the books are out there. We have them in our bookstore, Paradox and Healing, Braving the Void, The Unbroken Field. Is there any other place listeners can go to learn more about you or uh, connect with you potentially? I think reading the books is probably the, you know, everything I am is in those books. Okay. All right. And we'll be sure to announce when your next either in-person or online workshop is. Okay. (laughs) Thank you so much, Michael. Really enjoyed this. Take care. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with the incomparable Dr. Michael Greenwood. If you want to learn more about Michael's works, pick up copies of his books from the Pacific Rim College bookstore or order online at paradoxpublishing.com. If you are interested in studying acupuncture and Chinese medicine, visit the School of Acupuncture and Oriental Medicine at PacificRimCollege.com. For online learning, visit PacificRimCollege.online. If you enjoyed this podcast, share it with your friends and family and give it a five-star rating on whatever podcast app you are using. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, set clear intentions and reap the benefits of their manifestation.